Hi, this is Against Everyone with Connor Habib, a podcast featuring my conversations with countercultural figures and presenting complex philosophical, spiritual, and political ideas in an engaging and accessible way. Well, friends, I am fast approaching episode 200 of this show. Um, and so while we're on the way there, I thought I would re-present episode 100 of the show, which is uh, when I presented my autobiography of ideas and told you how you could create your own. It is one of my favorite episodes. It's one of the favorite episodes of everybody that was listening at the time, but obviously I have a lot more listeners now than I did two and a half years ago. So um, I think it's great. Uh, <laughs> it's a great exercise to do, and um, I'm excited for you to try it. I talk all about what that is, how to do it on the show, why you'd want to do it, all that sort of stuff. Um, I'm kind of posting this also in the build up to the release of my novel, Hawk Mountain, which if you listen to the show, um, or follow me on any social media, you probably have heard me not shutting the fuck up about because it's really exciting. <laughs> this development of this thing, you know, I'm never going to have kids. So this is a bit like having a kid, um, that I'm sending out into the world and that is going to grow up and have its own life and interactions with other people. So that novel comes out on July 5th, uh, in the U S and in on July 21st in Ireland, the UK, and Australia. And I'm doing uh, a book tour, which I've posted on um, ConnorHabib.com. You can go there and find it. You can find it on Patreon.com forward slash ConnorHabib. Um, so there's an East and West Coast book tour in July. And then um, I'm coming home and to Ireland, and I'll be doing some events here uh especially in Dublin, there'll be, uh, three events, I think. Um, and I'll post the details on that soon. And then there'll be some other around Ireland and then in the UK as well, hopefully in Australia at some point. Now, as that is culminating, I have been thinking so much about what led me to this point. And I was going to do like another episode about that, but then I thought, no, I already have that in the autobiography of ideas episode. So that's another reason why I'm reposting this one. Um, I'm also reposting it just because I'm really busy in the lead up to all of this. I'm planning these tours and all that. However, um, another big reason I'm reposting it is because I want to offer these kinds of exercises more often to people. Uh, people email me all the time asking me for sort of spiritual development advice or whatever, which I'm not a guru. I don't have spiritual development advice exactly for people, but I do have some things that you could try, whether they're actually spiritual or just self-developmental or if they're philosophical things to do, even writing exercises, those kinds of things. I know a lot of them and I'm very happy to offer them to you. And so I'm folding them into Patreon, which I'm restructuring. So if that's something that sounds exciting to you, go to patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib and support the show and you'll get all that stuff. I'm sort of revamping the entire thing. It's something I've been promising to do since the beginning of the year, but I just have not really had time for. And now I really am doing it. I'm really excited to do it <laughs> because I, Patreon is sort of like... I know you're probably like, why the fuck is he talking about Patreon? Why are we not listening to him talk um, with some philosopher about Deleuze and Mars or something? That's all coming, I promise. But um, the reason Patreon is important to me is that it lets me sort of, aside from the fact that it's the lifeblood of the show and it pays for everything and this show would not be possible without your Patreon contributions, it also allows me to sort of extend the interaction um, in certain ways. And it allows me to have a kind of more of a sort of breathing response with you guys where, um, yes, I put the show out. It's available for free for everybody. But when you feed back into the show, then a different kind of interaction starts to happen. And because that's happening, I want to also give more things for you to sort of hold on to, to try, to talk about, to think about, to mull over all that. So... The Patreon is changing pretty significantly shortly after this episode comes out, um, so check up on it, and if you have been hearing again and again me say patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib, patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib, 
you know, let this be the time where you decide to support it. Um, because I got to tell you, running a podcast while you're planning two book tours <laughs> and you have a novel coming out and you're doing all the media around that and you're also doing events like surrounding Ulysses and all this kind of stuff, it's it's not easy, guys. Um, and your help is really, really what keeps it going. It keeps me um, responsible. Um, it keeps me uh wanting to find things that are truly meaningful to me to have discussions about rather than just sort of falling back onto uh, stuff that is not so meaningful to me but I could easily make the show about um, just to be have a filler. Now, you're probably thinking, well, shit, but this is an old episode and you're reposting it. Isn't that a filler? But no, I don't think it is. I think that this exercise, which was so popular when it came out, can prove really useful and powerful for anybody that's new that's listening to the show, or if you listened to it back then and you still haven't done this exercise, do it. Okay, that's it. That's my whole pitch, um, but also uh, the offering. And thank you so much for listening. I can't believe we're almost at 200 episodes. I can't believe the book is coming out. I can't believe I'm going on tour and I'm going to get to meet a lot of you guys. I mean, this is just awesome. (laughs) All right, Uh, thanks so much, and here we go. I love that you all are listening so much. I wanted to sort of meet you in a way by giving you an exercise that you could do at home as well to deepen your experience of everything that this show tries to do. Um, So I'm going to uh, tell you all about that exercise and then I'm going to just kind of do it on the show and then you can do it after the show is done. And what that exercise is, is an autobiography of ideas. Um, So let me explain. So for me, this show is really about two things. Um, The first thing it's about is ideas. The show will always be about ideas. It's why I have guests on and I'm not like, I don't interview them. I'm not like, oh, you had this book come out. You had this album come out or this movie. Tell me about this book, album, movie. It's not interviews like that. Instead, it's conversations where we really deeply engage with the ideas that move through and exist um, within and evince themselves through the creative work uh, that comes from these amazing people. And uh, the other thing that this show is really about is meeting, like really trying to meet people. Um, I only record in person. Uh, I don't ever do it remotely because I think that there's a real quality of uh, meeting and warmth. And there's a kind of depth of feeling uh, when you sit down with somebody in the same room, when you actually gather with them. Um, And also that kind of, you know, diminishes the likelihood of disagreement. Uh, I don't really like getting into disagreements with the guests. As you've noticed, it rarely happens, even though there's plenty of stuff that people say that I might not agree with. I try to actually uh, sit there with them with the principle of resonance. What is this person saying that resonates with me? And that's something that I really hope uh, you as listeners take away from the show. Like, what did this make me think of? What did it provoke? What is this uh, thing that the guest or Connor said uh, serving to be a springboard for? Like what other thoughts, what other directions, all that kind of stuff. So um, so the autobiography of ideas that I'm going to do on this show uh, is based on that. Like it's going to be about ideas and it's going to be trying to sort of meet those ideas and also meet you by giving you the exercise so you can do it yourself. Um, I'm going to go through a ton of thinkers and a ton of ideas on this episode. And uh, I'm going to make a list of most of them, patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. You can get that list. Um, and there's just going to be a ton of stuff on there. Um, I'm going to try to get everybody that I mentioned on the show on there, but I might forget one or two. We'll see what, what happens. Um, So, you know, this idea of doing this uh, 
the the concept of you know behind doing this autobiography of ideas comes from two things. It comes from uh, Gilles Deleuze's sort of off-the-cuff comment in one of his books with uh, Felix Guattari, where he says, like, uh, I, I think it was in a book with Guattari. I might be wrong about that. <laughs> but anyway, uh, Deleuze said that, uh, you know, ideas um, and concepts were kind of like characters in a novel to him. That's how he viewed them. That's how he encountered them. So in other words, they weren't just these flat problems or, you know, puzzles or you know whatever uh, you know how people view ideas sometimes rather that they cause this kind of emotional longing to follow them to know them and after all that's his view of philosophy as well which i think is the right one which is that philo like it's a friend it's an affinity for knowledge it's affinity for knowing um and i think you know when we're doing biographical work um, and when we're looking back on our lives we forget to include all these friends that come to us in the forms of ideas from these other friends who are the thinkers the artists the weirdos whatever that come up with them the second place that this comes from is the spiritual biography work that anthroposophists do so anthroposophy if you've listened to the show is a system set up by rudolf steiner um, that's a simplification of it, but the, the mystic, uh, occultist, philosopher, scientist, blah, blah, uh, created anthroposophy. So the people carrying on his work, they do something uh, a lot of times called spiritual biography, which is sort of mapping the spiritual currents in your life to understand destiny and karma and how you relate to others and so on and so forth. Um, I'm not using their structure. I'm just sort of loosely basing what I do on this episode and how I'm going to tell you how to do it. Um, on my own idea of how this could be done. Um, so, you know, when what I want to accomplish here is to have myself and you look back on our lives and see how certain thinkers and ideas and themes move in and out and contract and expand and deepen our sense of self and deepen our commitments in the world uh, to causes, um, to new concepts, to creative works, to other people, activism, and so on and so forth. Um, and we can see in a way a sort of shape of a character formed out of the, uh, the inclusion and the entrance of these other characters of ideas and thinkers. So it's kind of like we're forming here through this exercise of kind of intellectual Voltron, you know, <laughs> or uh, like, I don't know, the Predaking, if you are uh, into Transformers when you were a kid, like I was. Um, the Predacons. Anyway, uh, those won't be in the show notes. You're just going to have to look up the Predacons on your own. So I'm going to tell you how to start. Okay. So the way I would do this or the way I did do this and you can do it uh, you can sort of change the order of these steps if you want but here's how I think you should do it start listing out ideas and thinkers and writers that have been really important to you in your life and shaping who you are um you can think about uh, books or bands or movies or shows that you've gone to, um, you know, theater, all that kind of stuff. And just start listing out, these are really important to me. These have a real presence in my life and how I think about things. Since a huge part of my life has been spent with my nose in a book, most of what you'll hear about today are people who have written books, but I didn't by any means restrict myself to books. Certainly not just books by philosophers, as you'll see. There are a lot of people that aren't just who we would normally think of as idea makers that come into play here. So that's the first thing. Just start listing out, like, what are these things that are really important to me in my life that have really made a mark? And it could be a really emotive mark. It could be a, a mark that's uh, about how I conceive of the world. But there are a lot of ways that ideas and thinkers and artists can become important to you. Okay, so that's number one. The second thing, number two, is then start putting those in age ranges. So map out chunks in your life. I think seven-year chunks are really good. Um, you can come up with chunks however you want, but I think seven-year chunks are pretty good, partially because that's how the spiritual biography people that I mentioned before do it. Also, it corresponds to astrological stuff. It corresponds to uh, developmental psychology stuff. Um, 
I think that there is a real spiritual significance to seven years significance to seven year cycles in our lives. Um, but you know, people would tell you how to do it one way or another. Uh, it's not so important to think of these chunks as discrete periods of your life, although they may be, um, where there's no overlap. So say if you do, um, you know, you have a thinker who is really important to you when you were uh, 14 to when you were 17. Now, obviously, that's not falling into that neat category of seven-year sort of chunks, but it, it, that's not so important. You know, you don't have to get everything to fit up perfectly. So that's why I think having this kind of arbitrary one to seven or zero to seven or whatever, and then so on and so forth up until the age you are now is really... Uh, one of the best ways to do it. It stops you from getting all overly complicated about which thinker was important at which period of time. You just find out when they really had the most influence and you sort of insert them there. Okay, so the first thing just to review is you're just listing uh, books, ideas, thinkers, artists, blah, blah, that are really important to you. Um, and then you're going to create a little chart where it's like seven-year time chunks or whatever time chunk you decide on. And then you're going to fit them into, well, they were really important at this period of my life. Okay. And then the third thing is when it's all grouped together, think about what was happening in that time period in terms of events. And you can also then sort of see as these thinkers and artists and movies, blah, blah, are grouped together. Um, you can start seeing sort of themes that are appearing in your life, okay? So let's look at all this. And remember, the important thing to lean towards is uh, not the outward big events, which will show up, and certainly, as you'll hear, they show up for me in my life so profoundly so in a few cases that I have to break up those seven-year chunks to recognize that there's been a kind of life-shattering um, from certain events, but I still want you to kind of lean towards uh, what the ideas and books and movies, I'm going to say those kinds of things again, again, the ideas, books, movies, artists, thinkers, musicians, weirdos, whatever. Um, I'm going to, sorry that I said that 8 million times, but anyway, I want you to lean more towards that. Okay. Of course, a lot of people I know have changed my life as well. And I'm going to some of those will make an appearance uh, in this as I do the exercise. Um, and some of these thinkers or some of those people I've met, and that's been really huge. Like, in other words, um, there have been people in my life who are friends who have really swayed my life through their friendship. I'm actually not going to include them here. <laughs> but there might be people who I'm really good friends with who I knew as thinkers or artists first and whose work was so inspiring to me first. And those I will include. So it's no disrespect to my friends. I'm just doing something different here. And so are you um, when you do it. Okay. Um, so we're leaning towards ideas, creative works, and creators. Okay. So let's start from zero to seven. Um, I'm going to call this period of my life naming all the animals. <laughs> That's something else you can do when you go back and you do this sort of, uh, when you look at the themes, you can name these periods of your life if you want. Um, and uh, I'm going to get past this one rather quickly because, you know, before you turn seven, you have this real kind of blendedness with the rest of the world that makes it a little harder for you to single out specific uh, things. So, you know, probably the most meaningful things for me, like my first memory, um, which I mentioned on, I think, the episode with Amanda Palmer, um, where my first memory is actually of a dream. I was eaten by a fox, which was eaten by a wolf, which was eaten by a bear. And when the bear ate the wolf with the fox with me in it, uh, I woke up. And that memory actually was one of the most important things to me. Now, I know that that's an event, but again, I wasn't really reading books much uh, until, you know, maybe I was f four. I started reading at a pretty early age, um, definitely before I started kindergarten. Um, but I wanted to say one of the things that I do remember also is a book, um, and it was a book about uh, sharks. And in it, there was a picture of a dead dolphin. And my sister could read at the time, and I couldn't. So let's say she was probably 
yeah, seven and I was probably four. So just starting to learn how to read, but not really like I knew the alphabet, but I couldn't string words together. And I remember looking at the dolphin, which was dead. It was half eaten by sharks. And my sister said, this dolphin is dead. And I was really disturbed. And I was like, no, it's not. It's not dead. And she said, yes, it is dead. And I said, no, it's not. And she said, it's dead, D-E-A-D. And I responded. And I remember just being so frustrated. No, alive, Q-N-T-V. Like I started <laughs> saying letters, but I didn't know how to spell. So actually that book about sharks had a profound influence on my life because it was this moment where I realized that by naming things, you were fixing them in a certain way. So that was a kind of first uh, philosophy, magical lesson in my life was from that book. I also had these things called safari cards, which were uh, these cards that had a picture of an animal on the front. And then on the back, there was uh, all this information about each animal. And I had these books called, uh, they were like National Geographic Mammal Books, and there were two of them. And there were just all these pictures of mammals and descriptions of them and stuff. So there was this deep need to kind of uh, catalog uh, that was starting at that time in my life, inspired by these books. Okay, I know that's not the most exciting start, but as I start reading, things get a little more interesting. So uh, we'll move to 7 to 14, and I call this time the discovery of magic. Discovery of magic happens almost immediately. Um, this is an important age in child development by most standards. I was reading, again, these very catalogy kind of books. Um, I was reading my brother's Dungeons and Dragons monster manuals and just looking at all the names of all the monsters and the beans and just committing them to memory and I would draw them kind of excessively. I would also uh, read super books that were just sort of about superheroes. Um, I don't remember if, if if Who's Who or the Marvel Universe uh, series that just were kind of catalogs of all the characters in those respective comic universes were out yet, but I was doing something like that myself where I was just drawing the heads of these superheroes and writing their names underneath. And just like, and I, even on print shop, because my mom got a computer very, very early, I would print out the names of different ants. I would print out the names of different cars. I became obsessed with like listing things. But as I was reading those Dungeons and Dragons manuals, there were the names of devils um, in one of them. And I remember I was playing outside uh, when I was a kid and I said one of the names of one of the devils and behind me there was this unearthly roar, this growl that was not a dog, it was not a cat, it was not a person, it was this crazy sound that was just like a beast <laughs> and it sounded like things being torn up and like screaming all at once and I ran inside and I still avoid saying that name, by the way. Um, but that is an event that sort of ties into some of the stuff that I was reading at the time. Every Parent's Worst Nightmare. I read Dungeons and Dragons books, and then uh, the devil showed up in the backyard. <laughs> but um, in any case, I also uh, was reading, I got this book called uh, Curses, Hexes, and Spells by Daniel Cohen. And Daniel Cohen wrote a ton of books um, about supernatural stuff, paranormal stuff. And I was so, I stole it from the school library. I don't know why the hell that book was in my school library. And I tried um, to uh, do all kinds of black magic stuff when I was a little kid with it. Um, I also began to read comic books, um, really read them at the time, especially X-Men, which was written by Chris Claremont. And so these people who had powers but were also outsiders became very important to me. Um, and just following their story and, you know, seeing it in that intensity of, of color and just the weirdness of it. Also, Piers Anthony, the fantasy writer, came into my life at this time. And he wrote this series of books called the Xanth books, which took place in this fantasy world where everybody was using puns. I'm sure I would think they were awful now, um, but they were really exhilarating to me then. Again, they were just this sort of uh, 
really densely populated books. So just like the comic books were, just like the monster manuals were, there were just so many, there's such a variety of different kinds of characters. <clears throat> and they all had kinds of powers. Um, and in fact, that was the principle of Xanth, was that everybody had a, a magical power. Well, except this one character who is named uh, uh, Chameleon, I think. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> so they all had magical powers. Um, and then later I read uh, his series, The Incarnations of Immortality, which is like where one book was about the character of death and one book was about the character of time, the character, you know, um, and so that the character of war and so on and so forth. Um, really interesting for me because in those books, ideas and concepts were actual characters. Um, these phenomena uh, had these avatars where they were, you know, actually the main characters of the book. Um, so what I can see about this period of my life from 7 to 14 is that there's this very strong fantasy element and preoccupation. And also, uh, you know, I noticed that there was a real need to be um, believed in uh, that felt kind of intensely lacking. So I really like wanted all this magical stuff to be real. That's why I was like trying to cast these spells and so on and so forth. And I also found that when something did happen, like with that encounter with the devil growl, nobody believed me. Um, and in fact, I found myself making up stories about other supernatural and paranormal stuff that had happened to get people to believe me because I wanted them to believe that one time when it really did happen. Now, there are other supernatural paranormal encounters in my life that also really did happen, but I made up whoppers like ghost stories and stuff like that and told people about them. Um, but there was always that one that was real and nobody would believe that one surely if I didn't live in a world where people at least believed in ghosts or whatever else I was making these stories up about. So, okay, we moved to 15 to 21. And that's where, this is what I call uh, <laughs> awakening into the philosophy of the body. All right, that's what I would call this time period. That is, there's uh, this real horror element um, and this real punk rock element at this time in my life. And in fact, this period still really informs my life rather deeply. So when I was around 15, was the first time, or 14, 15 is the first time that we went to Ireland when I was a kid. And obviously, um, if you listen to the show and you know where I live now, that made a really deep impression on me. But it also did bring this magical landscape that I had had, you know, before to life. This magical landscape that I'd only really seen or felt in uh, books, except for that one sort of devil encounter and the magical stuff I tried to do. And it just felt so real and present here in Ireland. Um, so the ideas from the previous, you know, part of my life really took on a kind of realness when I was walking through the Irish landscape. And if you've never been here, it's very difficult to describe, uh, but it feels very potent. At that time also, I started reading horror and really started reading it. Um, Clive Barker became so important to me. Um, and his books are extremely, and his stories especially, are extremely bodily. Um, they don't shy away. In fact, the Books of Blood, um, you know, <laughs> which is his series of short stories, is all of, really each one of them is a horror story about a body in one way or another almost. Um, and also they're sexual. Uh, Harlan Ellison became really important to me, but especially um, Deathbird stories, a collection of stories that really profound, potent, violent, and intense about gods, and again, very bodily in its own way. Lovecraft, uh, I bought my first Lovecraft book when I was in Ireland. Um, I remember being in the bookstore in Ireland and seeing all the sort of different covers for books that I was familiar with, and I found this giant uh, In the Mountains of Madness book uh, that had a bunch of his other stories in it, and giant for me at the time, and I got it, and I slogged I yog slogged through that whole thing. Um, but that sense of dread uh, really started to rise up in me and I began to really enjoy it. It was such an intense sensation. I also had this book called Monsters that was edited by Vincent Price. And I remember being in high school and, uh, you know, someone had talked about 
I forget what it was, but I was in biology class and I had this asshole biology teacher, Miss Pantella. She was a horrible human being. Um, who knows? Maybe she's nice to her uh, dogs or her whatever. But anyway, terrible person. Uh, and I remember uh, I said something about it raining frogs because I'd read it in this monster's book. Now, of course, it has rained frogs uh, throughout the world here and there. But this monster's book had this like chapter on oddities. And I and she was like, ah, it's never rained frogs. And I was like, yes, it has. I read it in this book. So I brought the book in the next day and she held it up. She's like this, this book about monsters. And then she laughed out loud and got everybody to like laugh out loud at me. And I was like, yeah, but it's not. <laughs> anyway, that longing to be believed sort of stayed with me through that period, of course, um, that I mentioned before stayed with me through this period. But I remember that book um, showing how there was a kind of blendedness between this horror that I was reading and the world that I lived in. And it was really important to me that people recognize that that was there. Um, also around this time, I'm realizing that I'm gay, um, like really realizing it, not just sort of having vague ideas of it. Um, but, I, you know, we'll get back to that in a bit because it starts showing up uh, more intensely. Um, and I'm listening to a lot of music first, kind of what we would call alternative music. Um, the band Live, I grew up in Pennsylvania, very important to me, who's singing about religion, Krishnamurti. So I'm learning about these, uh, these, you know, I'm learning about religion, but I'm also learning about religious figures and spiritual figures from the music I listen to. It was Pearl Jam, this California band called Mary's Danish. Uh, it was really important to me. And they were singing about social and political issues, like Pearl Jam was. This local band called Swirl. And then the Breeders were also very important to me. Um, and there was a kind of... Uh, more intellectualized content there with the breeders and the pixies and that sort of stuff. And then I start setting up punk rock shows uh, and I start having these bands that I'm finding out about because I'm setting up the show, show up in my life. Chisel, uh, which is Ted Leo. If you know Ted Leo's band, like I did a bunch of shows with them, the dismemberment plan, lungfish, Jeff Farina, Brainiac, Tim Kinsella, and a lot of these bands are referencing thinkers, uh, philosophers. You know, there's a song by Jeff Reno's in the band Karate and Secret Stars that's mentioning Guy Debord, who I'd never heard of before that, mentioning Raymond Williams, um, and Tim Kinsella's mentioning all these French filmmakers, all that kind of stuff. So I'm getting, I'm imbibing this world of ideas also from the music that I'm listening to, which is often very experimental and strange and uh, creates really intense feelings of longing for me for like this world that's really big, even as I'm just in small town Pennsylvania, um, first on the east side and then on the west side when I go to school there for uh, near Pittsburgh for two years. Um, and so, you know, I'm also, you know, dealing with my sexuality. Someone gives me a tape, uh, a VHS tape of a gay porn, and it's about a bunch of workers who are abused by their boss. So they decide to sort of overthrow the bosses, take over the factory and fuck their boss and, uh, and the, the, the lackeys. So uh, it's that beautiful blend of uh, class war and gay sex that I had been looking for, but actually it really was profound. I mean, imagine the first real positive images you're seeing of uh, sexuality, the kind of sexuality you're imagining that could get you beaten up, that could get you, uh, you know, made fun of that could get you killed in certain places where I grew up, um, would, you know, now be presented in a positive way. So people are saying cocksucker and they mean it. It's not just an insult. Like that's actually the cock is being sucked and, uh, you're getting pleasure out of watching this thing. And there's this political subtext in it that is just sort of entering you as you, uh, are masturbating and watching it. Uh, this guy, Andy, uh, gave that to me. Andy's awesome. And very grateful to Andy for giving me that tape. And I think it's called it's not called Workers' Playtime. That's the name of the Billy Bragg album. But it's it's called like Worker... 
I don't know. I, I can't, I know what it's called, but uh, I can't remember it right now. But anyway, that becomes a really important, pornography becomes a really important idea force in my life uh, at a certain point. It, it, I'd watched a lot of porn before then. In fact, I'd started watching it at a rather young age. But, but when it starts displaying sexuality positively, it shows up as a conceptual friend, as a philosophical friend in its own way. It presents a kind of theory. It's like, well, there are a bunch of scenes on this tape. So that means that there are guys in the world doing these things that I'm not even supposed to imagine, experiencing it as pleasure. And like that's happening everywhere and they're enjoying it and they're not ashamed of it and they're not freaking out about it, at least not in the movie. So that was very important to me um, as a realization. There was a small um, intervention kind of toward the end of this period. So from 15 to 21, maybe, you know, right around when I turned 19 or something, someone gave me a Donald Barthelme book. Uh, a little earlier than that even, but Donald Barthelme is a fiction writer who writes very strange, almost surreal stuff. He writes great short stories. And uh, that was the kind of bridge from me reading horror and fantasy and comic books and stuff about monsters into reading literary fiction. Um, so Donald Barthelme provided this kind of bridge, but he's kind of a even though he shows up in this period of time, he kind of almost belongs to a different period of time in my life. But it, he, he creates a bridge to it, I should say. Um, and, you know, I'm also getting these other sort of little bridges. You know, towards the end of high school, I'm listening to Pavement and John Zorn. Um, I'm reading Joan Didion uh, after... Donald Barthelme, uh, shortly after high school ends. So I'm getting this kind of like intellectual stimulation that is not just about the kind of uh, tremorous vibration that the you know pornography and horror cause in the body. Um, but I would still say that this period and and that punk rock. Uh, bring to the body, but I would still say that this period, I would typify it as the awakening into the philosophy of the body. That's how I feel about this time in my life. So from 22 to 28, the next period, um, I'm going to have to break this up into two periods because in the middle of that, or sort of towards the middle, is my mother's death. And I can really see how my idea world looked on one side of that death and how it looked on the other. So that's one of the cool things about doing this exercise. You can sort of see how, you know, your ideas radically shift um, in accordance to certain events in your life as well and what those themes are, right? So like, so I would call this period from 22 to 28 uh, the Siege Perilous. <laughs> so the Siege Perilous was from that Chris Claremont X-Men, there was a, a there was a sort of run of the X-Men of Uncanny X-Men where they all went through this portal. So rather than die, they went through a portal called the Siege Perilous, which is named after Arthurian legend. And they do it, and they come out on the other side with completely new lives, and they don't even really recognize themselves or each other. Some of them don't even know they have powers or whatever. But in other words, I'm using this to say that metaphor to say like. There was me on the one side, which had sort of gathered and amassed all these kinds of ideas, these fantasy ideas, these horror ideas, these punk rock ideas. And then there was me sort of moving to the other side of that and what that life looked like. Um, so from 22 to 24, I would say it was an amplification. That's what I would call this period, the amplification. This is where the intellectualization really sorts of sort of kicks in from that uh, period from before. And the bodily stuff also uh, turns deeply towards sex itself and viewing sex. So there's an amplification of intellectualism and of sexuality. So what's happening in this time? I'm encountering gay porn more on my own. So I'm seeing movies made by Shishi LaRue and Joe Gage. And be, being able to see like certain porn movies are better than others. Um, and there are reasons why. And I'm, I'm really starting to feel drawn to porn performers, in particular, John Vincent and Paul Kerrigan, um, Blake Harper, Blake Nolan, um, basically these kinds of uh, certain kinds of performers and how they perform, what they bring to the screen. And that's really tied into my desires and pleasure. And it's so intense at this time. Um, and very happily, those two directors, Shisha Leroux and Joe Gage, later became collaborators. I mean, who could ask for more? And it's like a dream come true. Also, Susan Sontag's showing up. My friend Mary uh, 
gave me a Susan Sontag book. Um, well, she talked about Susan Sontag all the time and she just talked about her so uh, enthusiastically that I really needed to know who this woman was. So I start reading Susan Sontag and I'm obsessed with her. Like there is like a year goes by where you would not hear anything leave my mouth. That's not like Susan Sontag says, it was, must've been really annoying for people. Um, James Joyce comes into my life through my amazing professor, uh, Jonathan Quick, and I read Ulysses, and that really does a number on me. Um, and I'm working at Amherst Books, where I'm surrounded by what it was called Atticus at the time, it was called Amherst Books, because I'm going to UMass Amherst, and I'm surrounded um, at the time by all these like philosophers that I've never heard of before, because this is a great bookstore that's just filled with just tons of stuff that you know, in a college town, uh, you know, there are people that actually read philosophers and read critical theorists and all. Of course, there are in other places, but there's enough to have the shelves packed with this. There's another bookstore in town called Food for Thought and another one called Raven Books, which I also worked at for a bit, which is an anarchist bookstore. And they all have these like intellectual figures that you might just find out about by just browsing the shelves and just pulling one off the shelf and reading the back of the book and then getting so excited and going home. But Amherst Books was the primary place for this. Um, so uh, what's happening is that sex is becoming really inspiring to me. It's becoming part of my identity, especially through these porn movies, uh, especially through reading about radical sexual figures, people like uh, Scott O'Hara, Amber Hollibaugh, um, and these sorts of people. And then um, a kind of hyper-intellectualization is taking place as well. So that's why I'm saying there's this amplification of these two kinds of centers, the intellect and the sexual center in my life. I can almost see it as sort of like, if you'd imagine kind of like a glowing ball in front of your head and that's your intellectualism and a glowing orb in front of your crotch and that's your sexual center, they're kind of just like pulling me in two directions and really burning really brightly at this period. Not really finding a ton of ways to hook up at this point, um, but I'm still just feeling both of them really intensely and trying to just sort of uh, roll with that in my life. And then when I'm 24, my mother dies. And she'd been dying over a period of time. I wrote an essay about it called uh, When You're Sick, You'll Wait for the Answer, But None Will Come. And she'd been dying over a long period of time, but really like this was still, of course, a devastating development. I'm 24 years old and, you know, your mom isn't supposed to die when you're 24. That's what people think. So um, I'm kind of really knocks the wind out of me. Uh, that event, which needs to be included here, uh, it really, it makes me less of an asshole because I was a true asshole before this point, really just kind of like a jerk to people. Um, but it starts to sort of leave me at this point because I'm like, fuck, our moms all die. You know, <laughs> I start to realize that everybody goes through this pain and this sadness and this grief. And so this is what I mean by going through the siege perilous. So I have this like long period of I can't really read or write or do too much. I'm just sort of walking around in a haze and getting drunk every day. Uh, you know, spending inheritance money buying around for everybody in the bar. So my inheritance money is like shot within, you know, and it's not that much. My mom was a teacher, you know, getting re retirement money. So it's like shot within a year because I send it, spent on booze and, and books that I can't even read or enjoy. And then I go through that, that sort of murky passage through the portal. And on the other side, I find myself really engaged with ideas that make me almost unrecognizable to myself. So there's this real reach for a radical break, this like undoing and undoing and undoing and every sort of stage of this from 24 to 28, this period I call radicalization, I start uh, undoing the things that I learned before. So I start reading Vine Delivery Jr., Russell Means, Ward Churchill, however problematic he might be, these indigenous thinkers who are showing me that the Western way of thinking and Western philosophy, which I was kind of getting into in a minor way before this period, uh, like they have all overlooked this huge population of people and this completely different way of living, thinking, approaching the world. Okay, in some ways it's similar and there's overlap. I don't mean to romanticize it, but this completely different way of being um, and really condemning a lot of the stuff that I loved before. Um, 
I'm ashamed to say that that led me into a period, a short period of neo-primitivism where I'm reading people like Derek Jensen and John Zerzan, and they're having a real effect on me where I think like we need to get into, you know, destroying civilization itself and all that kind of stuff. Now, later I realized that those messages aren't really uh, important. So sometimes you can find this in your autobiographical timeline. You'll find these thinkers that you're just like, and now I really don't like them at all. And they're not really useful at all. So that's how I feel about Derek Jensen and John Zerzan and all other neo-primitivists. They don't do anything for me now. But it kind of had to go through it to understand their arguments and so forth and move on. Happily, um, that encounter with those kinds of anarchists led me to ones that I like more in this time period. Bob Black and Emma Goldman and so forth. Um, and that's all really stimulating something in me. Um, again, this like I'm trying to find the most radical thing that I can find at this point. So it's like sort of unseating uh, Western fundamentalism and reading these indigenous authors that are really exciting to me. Um, and then trying to unseat uh, uh, industrialism and civilization altogether with these other thinkers, but then deciding that that's not quite right but still understanding that society can be uh, created in a completely different way with these anarchists. And then those anarchists are leading me to these kinds of magical anarchists. So the theme of magic has still been present through all of this from that very early age. And I'm reading Robert Anton Wilson and Peter Carroll, the chaos magician. I'm getting into, at this point, disinformation. Um, like right around the tail end of this, the whole disinformation uh, group, which was, you know, Richard Metzger and Paul Lawfully and uh, Howard Bloom, who ended up being kind of Islamophobic and crazy, um, Doug Rushkoff, uh, Grant Morrison, all those people are starting to come to my life, and Daniel Pinchbeck as well, who proves actually very important to me when I read Breaking Open the Head because. Uh, it's his chronicle of moving out of a kind of Western materialism, which he seems to unfortunately have moved back into since then. <laughs> but in that book, uh, through his use of psychedelics, and it's becoming very important to me. So this is a short period of time where it's as if, as if everything that came before was being overwhelmed, you know, um, even the most amplified forms of it being overwhelmed, and my interest is in undoing and undoing and undoing. All right. So um, then we move on to this period when I'm 29 to when I'm 35. And um, I call this like <laughs> the greatest period. And what I mean by the greatest period is not, uh, it, it doesn't mean that uh, it's the best. I just mean I'm finding pinnacles here. So uh, even though that sounds like I'm saying it's the best, there's still a lot of life left for me to live. And I'm not saying that everything in this period is the best. I'm just saying it's the greatest that I could conceive of at the time. So from 29 to 35. And in the center of this, there's another break, just like in the past period with my mom. Um, I was beaten up by my boyfriend at the time. I was sent to the hospital and... Uh, you know, I'll talk about that in a minute, but I had to break up this period too. So there's actually about 28 to 30. So to see, there's some overlap there, but 29 to 30, 28 to 30. And then uh, right around the end of 29 to 30 is when this break happens. So this period is about to start and it's kind of like a false start. <laughs> but um, in the beginning of this, so from 28 slash 29 to 30, is when I'm really spending a lot of time with Lynn Margulies. And uh, I'm learning a lot from her. You can listen to the episode I did with her on the show. Um, it's the last recorded interview with her in her lifetime. Uh, <laughs> and um, so I'm learning about Gaia and symbiosis and evolution. And I'm also learning about evolution and animal morphology and plants and botany from this guy, Craig Holdridge, who runs a place called the Nature Institute, um, which I took a three-month uh, course there, which meant every day while I was in grad school and teaching in grad school for two things and teaching at UMass. So I'm driving back and forth. But Craig is giving me this deepening experience of Goethe, and also Rudolf Steiner. 
And I'm also encountering uh, Byron Katie, the spiritual teacher, through uh, a therapist I had. Um, and he really brought in, brought, I mean, his whole method was basically based on Byron Katie, Tom Herman, his name is, he's awesome. Um, and so this is all in Massachusetts. And Byron Katie asked these four questions. Is it true? Can you really know it's true? Who would you be without that thought? Can you turn that thought around, right? I I know that uh, <laughs> I know that this is uh, like actually I'm I'm getting I'm typifying that a little bit wrong, but it's fine. I don't need to dwell on Byron Katie too much. She's a spiritual teacher. She would not call herself spiritual, but she's a spiritual teacher who uh, can really lead you through separating thoughts and emotions and actions and just seeing them very clearly. So I really highly recommend you go check her out if you're ever in a period of distress. But it also has the intense effect of just really sort of uh, disassembling your personality <laughs> if you go really deep into it, which is really good in a way, uh, but it proved really intense for me. So Lynn, Craig, Byron, Katie, I'm having sex at rest series a lot at this point. <laughs> but basically, I would say I would typify this as like, uh, this is a time of finding and cooling passions. So I hit a wall with hyper intellectualization and hyper engagement with my body and all that kind of stuff. And I'm finding myself learning more about life from people that I really meet. So Lynn and Craig and Tom, who's bringing Byron Katie to me, and the men I'm having sex with at Rester is because I'm doing that a lot in this period of time. I'm learning from these experiences with meeting people. And it's not a surprise to me then also at this time, I'm taking all these workshops with people. So I'm taking very small classes with Maladoma Somme, the Dagara Shaman, Graham Hancock, the uh, sort of rebel archaeologist, uh, Fritjof Capra, the uh, scientist and spiritual, the physicist and spiritual thinker. Um, so I'm getting all this from also meeting and knowing people. So the experience through relationship is really important. And then um, I'm totally destroyed. So the biggest teacher, probably horribly at this time, is my boyfriend who I am so in love with at the time, my ex-boyfriend, and he just beats the shit out of me. Um, we had tensions before then, but, you know, calls me down to parking lot, uh, punches me, breaks my ribs, says he's going to kill me. I'm in the hospital the whole next day uh, with internal bleeding, broken, broken rib, like I said. And then also at the hospital, they tell me that uh, they think I have lymphoma. So everything falls apart at this time. And that's all in that essay that I mentioned before, when you're sick, you'll wait for the answer, none will come. But the, the essay I wrote about the actual abuse is called, uh, if you ever did write anything about me, if you ever did write about me, I'd want it to be about love. That's what it's called. If you ever did write about me, I'd want it to be about love. Uh, maybe I'm getting that title wrong. It's a long title, but you can find it. Just Connor Beebe, if you ever did write anything about me, I'd want it to be about love. Um, so anyway, I think like that period, that's so shattering because I'm learning all these really intense things from these most brilliant people. And then this event happens that's so shattering that like all the intellectualism I spent my entire life growing is like a monster is attacking me and I'm holding like a wilting flower as a weapon. It's just not doing anything. It can't act. It can't work. I can't fight with it. All this stuff that I had taken pride in my whole life. And so I want to say also, you know, some of the people that had started to come into my life at this point, but became more important as time went on, were Rudolf Steiner and Patricia Highsmith. I, uh, Rudolf Steiner, the mystic who I mentioned before, Patricia Highsmith, the author of Strangers on a Train, and Talented Mr. Ripley. I cannot uh, tell you how important she was to me. And I was sort of living one of her novels at this point with this guy who I was so fiercely in love with that he hated me um, and I hated him. I did not ever actually hate him. I just loved him so much that it was so painful. And I think the same thing for him, that it was just so painful and awful um, that it was like living in a Patricia Highsmith novel. Um, but 
anyway, I prefer to read her novels and be inspired by them now rather than live them out. But she's a big presence in my life. And Joy Williams, the fiction writer as well. So those three, Rudolf Steiner, Patricia Highsmith, Joy Williams, they start coming in right towards when the abuse is about to happen. And so then that happens with the boyfriend. And then from 30 to 35, I'm completely destroyed. And what rebuilds me? Well, porn rebuilds me. And Patricia Highsmith rebuilds me. And Rudolf Steiner rebuilds me. And Joy Williams rebuilds me. And so they're giving me, like, so I've come from this period with the most intense thinkers, the most intense relationship, all that kind of stuff. And then I'm emerging into the world and being reassembled by some of these friends I've met along the way. You know, it's quite like a fairy tale, like when the person is walking through the forest and they meet all these little friends that are like, here's a secret pebble. Just hold on to it while you journey. Here's a piece of string and here's, you know, a sponge or whatever. And then at each challenge that the character hits uh, later down the line, he or she finds that there's like such use for this thing that just seems simple and worthless earlier on. Um, now, none of these things seem simple or worthless, but I did not realize what a profound role they would have in rebuilding my life. So porn you know, I've made this decision to then be in pornography and it just saves my life and my sanity. And so all those people, John, Vincent, and Shishi LaRue and Joe Gage and all them, they come back up to save me in a way. And Rudolf Steiner is so present. Um, he, he's, he becomes so usable because I'm meditating, I'm doing the spiritual work that he asked for, and I start a spiritual group in San Francisco, a spirituality and science discussion group called Living Thinking, which I moderate at my place for two years. So he's really taking the stage, and he's never left. So porn has kind of fallen away a bit now uh, in my life, but Rudolf Steiner is still very present there. Um, and then Joy Williams, when I read her, and when I get deeper into her work, she always inspires me to write, and it's so intense. And Patricia Highsmith is telling me how people relate in the world in really dark ways. And so she's really present as well. And then these other anthroposophists start showing up. Valentin Tomberg, for instance, um, who... Well, I'm just going to actually let you discover Tom Burke for yourself. Um, <laughs> some of the thinkers that uh, were adjacent to Craig Holdridge, who I mentioned before, like, uh, uh, I think it's Edward Cranich. I'm going to kick myself for getting this wrong, but it'll be in the list that I mentioned earlier. And Wolfgang Schad, who is the uh, biologist who studies animals and wrote this incredible book on animal morphology called Man and Mammals. Um, now, I had known some of these people before, but they're starting to take this forefront, uh, the forefront in my life. And what I'm trying to get at here is that the ideas and the culmination of them and these thinkers are becoming usable at this point in my life. Finally, towards my mid-30s, they're becoming usable. And this is also when these podcasters start showing up for me. <laughs> Duncan Trussell um, from Duncan Trussell Family Hour and Alex Sikaris, who hosted Skeptico, who hosts Skeptico. Um, and mostly at this time, Skeptico is really just about near-death experiences and sort of uh, uh, shuffling away uh, or shedding materialism. So I'm getting these uh, thinkers in my life through listening now, which is very new, listening to podcasts for me. Lacan, Jacques Lacan is beginning to uh, become useful a bit too, because I'm going to Lacanian psychoanalysis. So I'm encountering the ideas of Lacan through something that's completely usable to me. So again, I would just say, like before, there's this intensity of ideas and it's really fulfilling and really enriching, but then I have this event in my life which none of them can even touch or come close to. And so then on the other side of that, I find myself gathering the ideas and concepts in my life that are useful to me. And are usable and I use them. And that's this period from 29 to 35, the greatest period. <laughs> so from 35 to 42, which is the period that I'm just emerging from now, um, I call it relationship and emergence. There's still some porn, but it's not happening so much. I find a different way to sort of engage with it. Um, this is a time to be surprised by the world. 
just when you thought you've seen it all, suddenly new and profound ideas and people and thinkers emerge in your life. And there's a flood of them in this time. So uh, I'm thinking of Daskalos, who I talk about a lot on the episode of the show I do with Daniel Joseph, who was one of Daskalos' students, the spiritual teacher who in many ways is just as profound, although not as wide-ranging, but just as profound as Rudolf Steiner. Alejandro Hodorowski shows up in this period. Um, my friend who's now my friend, Heather Berg, uh, who is also on the show, who really taught me how to respect and think about socialism and Marxism in a real way, um, without just being dismissive of it because it is a kind of materialism that irritates me. But she says she really insisted on showing me the value of it, and now I really do see it because of her. Um, Franco Bifa Berardi, uh, Gilles Deleuze, Michel Serre, uh, Michael Tausig, Ludwig Wittgenstein, Wilhelm Reich, um, even Kate Bush. Like, these are people that maybe I had heard of before, but they're showing up in my life in a real profound and enlivening way. So I think I'm really set with my ideas because I knew how to use them in that period before, and I'm teaching these courses on Rudolf Steiner and, and so on and so forth. But now, this variety. It's like a comic book again. It's like all these new characters to engage with that might have been around, you know, for a long time, but I just missed them. Okay. It's hard for me to analyze this period, this relationship and emergence period, because it's too close to me still. But I know that it's about being shocked that the world could once again bestow and offer so much to me. And that's when the podcast starts, and I want to start cataloging some of my engagements and interactions, cataloging again, like that earlier period of my life, cataloging these engagements and interactions with these people to share with others, because I know that these engagements have value. And now, at the sort of end of that, as I move from 42 to 49, I see that... Um, you know, there's this lesson, which is, you know, after you turn 42, you're genuinely aligned to your purpose in life. It's clear. So if you're 42 and it's not clear to you what your purpose is, it is clear. You just need to look back at this expansion and contraction of ideas in your life. And if you're not 42 yet, it's not happening yet. But you can really sort of step into your being at this time in your life and notice what you've built for yourself. Notice what you're meant to do. So as I turn that corner, still 42, um, but as I turn that corner, I find myself engaging with the Irish kind of versions of a lot of these uh, concepts, thinkers, principles, all that kind of stuff um, through Irish history, through Irish folklore, through my conversations with the many brilliant Irish people around me, through engaging with people like John O'Donohue. Uh, the Irish priest uh, and writer uh, who also studied Hegel. He's a poet. He's just incredible. And the Irish mystic, John Moriarty. They both died like kind of close to each other, actually. Um, and John Moriarty is sort of, you know, bringing in kind of some of those neo-primitivist vibes that I left behind, but doing it in a really spiritual, beautiful way, which still nevertheless honors uh you know, what we've become as well. He used to be a philosophy professor. And, you know, the idea for him is to make Ireland uh, uh, see itself in a way. He has a book called Invoking Ireland that I'm reading right now, so I shouldn't pre pretend that I'm that acquainted with him, although I've read other works by him. <laughs> so, um, but anyway, I am finding myself sort of turning this corner and saying, okay, uh, I know what I'm supposed to do in my life which you, we can talk about some other time, friends. Um, but I also uh, can look back and I can see these principles, naming the animals, the discovery of magic, awakening into the philosophy of the body, going through the portal, first through amplification and then through radicalization, um, having this greatest period which is shattered right in the beginning. So then I can get the real start and start using the ideas. And then this period of relationship and emergence. <sighs> okay, that's it. Wow, it took an hour to do that. <laughs> um, anyway, I hope that you will do this 
at home. I hope that you'll go through and uh, look at your own autobiography of ideas. It's really exhilarating to do. I have no idea if it is exhilarating to listen to, but this is my fucking show. So that's it. (laughs) I hope it was interesting to listen to. And uh, if nothing else, you learned something about me. Um, Thank you so much for hanging out with me. Please do support the show. I am always freaked out about whether or not this show can make it because of all the costs that go into it for the hosting sites and the you know the mailing list letter and you know each of the different sites that post uh, the show that I have to pay to get a certain amount of space to post as many shows as I put out every month, uh, to buying the books, to doing the travel, to just spending the hours and hours it takes every week to research the guests enough to have really good conversations with them. So please do go to patreon.com forward slash Connor and Beeb so I can do a hundred more and even a hundred more after that. And also so I can shut the fuck up about asking for support on patreon.com forward slash Connor and Beeb. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, Really, I love you. Thank you.